Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora. U.S. Fed officials are on guard for signs that investors and the public are losing confidence in their ability to keep prices stable in a moderate recovery with little wage growth. U.S. dollar holds jumped versus the yen after the Fed minutes and the S&P 500 declined. Alibaba prepares to sell its inaugural bond issue to U.S. investors as soon as today. An appetite for China A shares may have sent ETF assets towards a record, but the rally in Shanghai stocks that sent valuations to the most expensive levels versus Hong Kong counterparts in five years uh, appears to be slimming. We'll talk about this today with guest host Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting, and we'll also ask David Jenkins of the Fixed Trading Community about best practices for companies that are buying and selling through the link. Then David Graham, the chief regulatory officer and head of listing at Hong Kong Exchange, talks to us about a concept paper that they've issued on weighted voting rights. Finally, Fern Guy of Community Business joins us to talk about Hong Kong's first ever LGBT workplace inclusion index. Good morning, Peter. Lots to talk about today. Good morning, Vanessa. Very busy day. It is indeed. So let's get to it. Uh, let's look at the top stories. U.S. financial markets pulled back slightly from their most recent record highs, ending lower for the first time this week after the Fed released minutes of its late October meeting, uh, saying that it wouldn't w- alter its wording on the timing of any interest rate increases. Fed officials worried that a change could be misinterpreted by financial markets. Now, Chris Rupke, who is the chief economist at the Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi UFJ, says that interest rates are coming. There was nothing in the reading of the October 28-29 meeting minutes to suggest the Fed might delay its rates liftoff sometime in 2015 if the economy continues to perform well. The world economic outlook is not an issue. They are data dependent and the considerable time language may get dropped in December. This language may be confusing market pricing right now, keeping 10-year yields lower and the forward curve for short-term interest rates lower than it probably should be, given Fed tightening is less than a year away. away. Rate hikes coming? The Fed meeting minutes say it depends. It depends on the data. Good enough for us. The unemployment rate is falling closer to the trigger level for rate hikes based on the Fed's own forecasts. They will act on these forecasts if the forecasts are hit. Rate hikes are coming. Bet on it. The Dow Jones Industrial Average and the Standard & Poor's 500 Index mostly hovered slightly below the all-time high closes set a day earlier. The slide in oil prices continued, despite pivoting upwards at times during the day, and U.S. government bond prices fell. All told, the S&P 500 slipped three points to 2,048, the Dow fell two points to 17,685, and the Nasdaq Composite shed 26 points to 4,600. 75. Now, good times uh, may be rolling for equity investors, except, of course, for those who are betting that stocks will drop. Famous short seller Doug Cass says that he's trying to control risk. My view is that the, the Fed has made a mockery of fundamentals, that there's no real natural price discovery. Every asset class in the world is being tied relative to the U.S. 10-year yield, which is artificially depressed and even more depressed because of the recessionary conditions and the sovereign debt yields in Europe. Right. Um, It's creating, in my view, it's leading towards malinvestment. Malinvestment. What's that? 
If it's systemic risk, then there's problems. Now, we saw malinvestment in 2007 with CDOs and CDO squares and derivatives, all these financial weapons of mass destruction. And we're starting to see malinvestment today, and um, it could manifest itself readily, in my view, in the high-yield market, where over 20% of the high-yield issuance are energy-related. And, um, you know, the outlook, to me, for the price of oil is dire. Peter, Cass's contrarian views are well known to Wall Street. Now, he says that he's short on a bunch of positions, he's trying to control risk, and he's waiting to pull the trigger. Can you explain what this means for our listeners? Well, well he's betting that the market's going to go down. And, in, and the way he's doing that is by what's called selling short individual stocks. In other words, borrowing the shares and selling shares that he doesn't actually ho- own in the hope that they will go down and he can buy them back later at a cheaper price. Now, I think he's right in, some, in many ways. I mean, you know, there, there's no doubt that if you look at the US market, for example, it wouldn't have more than doubled since 2009 um, had it not been for the Fed pumping in $3.5 trillion of liquidity. So as he says, the Fed's made a mockery of fundamentals. Absolutely. It's made a mockery of any sort of pricing discovery, caused huge distortions in the financial markets. And it's not just the Fed. I mean, the Bank of Japan is conducting what, in my mind, is the most reckless monetary policy experiment that has ever been conducted by any central bank in history. Um, it's deliberately trying to devalue um, the yen. Um, it is, in effect, robbing people who are savers in the country in order to try and bail out its financial system because it has, you know, 260% debt to GDP, an enormous ratio. When you say it's <coughs> deliberately trying to devalue the yen, what do you mean by that? It's, deliberately. It, it absolutely wants to see the yen decline. Um, it want, it's, its whole policy, and, it, and it, remember it's doing this in conjunction with the government, is in effect to try and create um, economic growth and try and create inflation so that then somehow the government can try and get to grips with the massive amount of public debt that's in the, um, in the system. But it, it's going horribly wrong because at the moment, um, you know, Arbe's three arrows have just become one. All it is is the Bank of Japan going all in with monetary policy. The second arrow, which was supposed to be um, sort of, you know, an easing of fiscal policy seems to have been caught in midair now because they're not going to go and um, go ahead with the next round of uh, the, the sales tax hikes. And the third arrow, which was supposed to be restructuring the economy, Arbe hasn't even started yet. So we're down to one um, arrow. And it's totally dependent upon the Bank of Japan conducting this extraordinary monetary policy, which is really trying to print money, buy all the government debt. Any government debt that's issued now will be bought by the Bank of Japan on printed money, money that's created out of thin air, in the, in the hope that somehow this will create economic growth. This was nothing like the Japan of old. I mean, remember the, the economic miracle that we saw after the Second World War? This was based upon prudent monetary policies, households building up savings, that being invested in productive capabilities, creating um, you know, products, creating jobs. And we had a massive economic boom, which was based on good um, fundamentals. That went, all went wrong after the Plaza Accord when um, the, the US and, um, and Europe wanted to try and have the, uh, you know, their currencies um, sort of, you know, uh, uh, sort of depreciate against the yen. So, you know, and we're doing the same thing again. Yeah. And, and you know, in this part of the world, in, in, in Hong Kong and China, uh, I mean, China, everybody has been talking about slumping growth. So mm-hmm. none of this looks, sounds like it bodes well for China. Correct me if I'm wrong. 
Well, China is in a difficult place because its currency is pegged to the US dollar. Um, so, of course, you know, its, its currency is actually um, going higher with the US dollar. In the meantime, one of its main competitors in the region, Japan, is seeing its currency sort of fall. So it creates problems for, for China itself. And you do wonder how long will China and other economies, you know, in, in Asia, South Korea, Singapore, all having problems by, um, you know, these competitive devaluations, you know, how long can they put up with this before they have to step in um, and do some things themselves? Now, everybody has been really excited about the Hong Kong-Shanghai Stock Connect. That's, that's been the big news this week and, you know, coming for months. But the Shanghai gauge has fallen for five straight days, pairing mm-hmm. a seventh consecutive monthly gain that was fueled by speculation that the link would actually lure overseas funds. Peter, why has the interest waned? Well, the first day... Um, we saw the whole quota used up by, I think, about two o'clock in the afternoon. Now, that's sort of slightly technical because there were no sellers. It takes one day to settle the shares. So, you know, there was no one to sell on the first day. Um, and a lot of hedge funds in particular, retail investors bought. The problem is that for overseas mutual funds, there is an issue at the moment about who actually owns the shares because under the Hong Kong-Shanghai Connect system, the, 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 the Chinese regard it as the clearing house being the owner of the shares. CCAS, which is the Hong Kong um, clearing house, actually owns the underlying shares. Now, this is a problem for many mutual funds because they're not allowed to buy shares that they don't actually have legal ownership of. So that's one of the reasons why we're not seeing, you know, this flood of orders from sort of overseas traditional um, sort of mutual funds. But I think you have to judge this in the long term. It's only, you know, the first three days. And there's no doubt that this is a significant step along the road to opening up the capital accounts, making the RMB um, convertible. You know, there is very much a long-term trend here of which Hong Kong Shanghai Stock Connect is a big part of. Other products such as derivatives will probably be included at a later stage, maybe other exchanges like Shenzhen. So we're going to have to judge this over the long term rather than just two or three days. And one of the things that we're going to uh, really have to add into the mix is what kind of best practices actually apply, you know, for Mm. companies that want to trade all of these different products through the link or other such links. Uh, The Fixed Trading Community is a non-profit industry-driven standards body at the heart of global and financial trading, and they've published an industry implementation guide for the Shanghai Hong Kong Stock Connect project. Let's bring in David Jenkins, who is the co-chair of uh, Asia-Pacific Exchanges and Regulatory Committee at the Fixed Trading Community. Good morning, David. Good morning. So, David, you know, before we ask you specifically, you know, about the best practices, can you explain for our listeners uh, exactly what the fixed trading community is? Absolutely. So, the fixed trading community is a representative community of the entire group of market participants from exchanges through to sell sides and buy sides who are basically coming together to solve practical problems in the, in the trading community. And this might include things like regulation, um, it might include things like how to, to communicate more effectively together in order to place orders and that sort of thing. So fundamentally, Fixed Community is really a, a volunteer group aimed at bringing that community together. So, David, the Hong Kong-Shanghai link has been technically quite complex given the different market structures between Hong Kong and Shanghai, the different trading and clearing rules. Has this proved challenging for fixing coming up with harmonised messaging protocols and systems to allow trading on both markets? It has indeed. I mean, some things are very common with the programme against other different types of order placement. I mean, it's not exactly completely different in all aspects, but there are certain challenges about the program, in particular the fact that all the orders end up on a single order book but go through different channels. And in that way, we need to 
find a way to represent the program as a as a market route and and be very specific on how we differentiate between one program or another program when you're accessing the same market. So there were some technical challenges, absolutely. And have you made, had to make any compromises to the, the the usual fixed standards to try and accommodate this? Not really. I mean, the fixed standard is very flexible. I think really it was more a case of bringing the community together onto a standard implementation. I mean, fix itself is flexible enough for people to have different interpretations against the standard. But what we wanted to do really was bring the community together to actually solve the problem in a common way. And I guess that really allows for a, you know, a lowering of costs for all participants. Everyone's quite clear on how to implement it via the fixed standard. So it was really about bringing the community together. And, and is the fixed community optimistic about the, the long-term prospects for Hong Kong Shanghai Connect? Oh, very. I think, yes, there's been a lot of interest from the street. I think everybody wanted to be there day one. Uh, I absolutely think it's a landmark program and FIX certainly wanted to be, you know, on top of the program to make sure that we were bringing people together for both this Connect program and subsequent implementations of a similar nature. So this is a first step, but then given we're putting the standards out now, then we expect the subsequent steps will be easier and less complicated. And, and hopefully other products will be um, in, included later, maybe futures and options products, other exchanges. Presumably FIX will be glad to sort of accommodate this and will actually welcome more products on the, on the platform. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not one to speculate, but there's lots of optimism out there that it will be extended in, in various directions, you know, whether further asset classes or further exchanges. So I think the framework that we've put in place can accommodate that. And I know that the industry has been working very hard to make this program a success. All right. Thank you for joining us this morning. That is David Jenkins, who is the co-chair for Asia Pacific Exchanges and Regulatory Committee at the FIX Trading Community. The time is now 8.17 a.m. and the Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing has issued a concept paper on weighted voting rights. This was back in August. The concept paper seeks views on whether governance structures that have given certain persons voting power or other related rights disproportionate to their shareholding should be permissible for companies listed or seeking to list on the exchanges markets. As the response deadline is coming up very soon on the 30th of November, we thought we'd ask David Grant the Chief Regulatory Officer and Head of Listing at Hong Kong Exchange to bring us up to date. Good morning, David. Good morning. So, David, can you tell us what the concept paper is about and why voting rights are such an issue? Sure, and uh, thank you very much for giving uh, me the opportunity to do this. Um, So, uh, weighted voting rights, I think it it covers uh, a number of different concepts. I mean, the classic uh, weighted voting rights are really uh, dual-class shares, uh, sort of AB-class shares, where one class has disproportionate amounts of votes to to the other class. But as we explain in the paper, um, there are other forms of weighted voting rights related to either board nomination rights or board appointment rights which are either contained in the company's constitutional documents uh, or, in their, or in the form of, uh, of share capital. Um, so in terms of it being, uh, so that's the sort of basic things that we're looking at. In terms of why are they an issue or why are we looking at it, at it now? Um, as I think you're aware, I mean, the listing rules say that 
the, the rules should reflect currently acceptable standards in the market. So we have a responsibility to review those rules periodically and to consult the market when appropriate. So David, does, does the Hong Kong exchange itself have a view on this? Because clearly one of the, one of the drivers behind this is Alibaba, which we, we know um, in the end decided to list in New York. I would have thought it's in the Hong Kong exchange's best interest to actually um, try and change these listing rules so that you can attract companies like Alibaba to list in Hong Kong as opposed to overseas. So, so, so is the Hong Kong exchange going to take a position on this itself? Well, actually, I think as, as we've said, uh, I mean, as we said in the paper, this is very much at this stage a, a concept paper, and we haven't we haven't taken a view, and, and I, I'll explain why in a moment. But the, per, the reason why we've gone out with a concept paper rather than going out with uh, you know a typical consultation paper where you put forward a proposal on which you consult, what we've gone out with here is really a paper which is meant to promote an informed, focused, and coherent discussion around this topic, because this is a topic which is relevant to Hong Kong, I think, generally as a financial center, not so much just to the commercial interests of the HKX. What we're trying to ascertain is what is in the best interests for investors and other stakeholders in Hong Kong, rather than, as I say, just the commercial interests of of the HKX. And the HKX has a public interest override. You know, we are very concerned about regulatory standards and investor protection. So it seemed to us the right way to do this um, is to put out a paper which sets out a lot of the information around this topic, which is obviously, as you say, did attract quite a lot of media interest during the, the Alibaba matter, to see what the general stakeholders in Hong Kong think about this issue. And just going back to the point you make about Alibaba, we're very clear in the paper that the initiative to put out this paper was not driven by Alibaba. The the considerations around this topic uh, were things we were looking at before Alibaba came on the scene. Uh, And also one of the other impetuses for putting out the paper is you will have seen that the Financial Services Development Council, when it came out with its report about Hong Kong as as an international financial center, talked about this being a topic that should be considered and looked at a bit further. So it's a topic that's been around for actually a few years, uh, and this just seemed the right time to put out this broader paper. All right. Thank you. So we'll be waiting to see what happens. Thanks for joining us this morning. That is David Graham, the Chief Regulatory Officer and Head of Listing at the Hong Kong Exchange. A quick look at the numbers. The Nikkei is up six-tenths of a percent to 17,398, and Australia's ASX is down 26 points to 5,326. In currencies, one euro currently buys you 1.25 US dollars. The US dollar is worth 118 yen and the pound sterling is worth 12 Hong Kong dollars and 15 cents. Well, we'll be back to talk more about diversity and inclusion in the Hong Kong workplace, specifically uh, with a view to the LGBT index for workplace inclusion. That is right after this. Construction work, renovations and building maintenance can all be risky jobs especially when working at height. So if you're working at height, please be extra careful and wear a safety belt at all times. Failing to take the proper safety precautions can result in serious injury or death. Don't risk your life at work. Never cut corners. When working at height, 
Safety comes first. The time is 8.23 a.m. and community business opened for submissions last week. The Hong Kong LGBT Workplace Inclusion Index, the first of its kind in Asia. This is an index which will track corporate policies and practices for creating inclusive workplaces for lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender employees. So we welcome Fern Guy, who is the CEO of Community Business. Good morning, Fern. Morning, Renita. Fern, I have to ask straight off the bat, I mean, this kind of index was introduced in the UK, I believe, somewhere uh, close to 10 years ago. Why has it taken us so long, a, an entire decade, to get with the program? Um, well, I, th- I think, um, yeah, actually, the UK is quite far ahead, and also um, US and other jurisdictions like Australia. I, you know, I think the, um, you know, we've been involved at community business since 2009. We've been at the forefront of exploring issues related to workplace equality for LGBT individuals in Hong Kong. And it, it has been quite a sensitive issue. But I think what we've done over the last few years is really raise the profile of LGBT inclusion as an important business issue and help to bring the subject more into the mainstream. Within Hong Kong, we see that the dialogue has matured and more companies have started to take steps to address LGBT inclusion in the workplace. So we feel that this is the right time to launch an index because what it will do is, would engage, is engage and move organizations forward in their LGBT inclusion journeys. And, and Fern, what, what are the benefits for companies that have employment policies that are inclusive of LGBT individuals? Do they see some real sort of gains in terms of productivity, in terms terms of profitability? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, we found um, not just with our own research, but uh, there's been research around the world that's looked at um, diverse and inclusive workplaces. Um, inclusive workplaces accept people for who they are. They allow all individuals to contribute to their full potential. Um, and, and they tend to be free from, from st- stigma and bias. So the, the business case around diverse inclusion really revolves around being an employer of choice, um, high pro- higher pro- productivity, as you mentioned, better employee engagement, um, especially um, Gen Y. Gen Y are, are much more accepting and their ex- expectation for finding um, an organization which they want to work is that they are diverse and inclusive. Fern, has so, Hong Kong uh, historically not been inclusive, specifically when it comes to lesbian, gay, uh, homosexual, transgender employees? Has there been a specific bias? Well, I think um, it's it's a journey. Uh, we we published um, some research two years ago, uh, our climate study, um, which found that um, there is a lot of bias in the workplace. Um, I think over it was over eighty percent of respondents um, felt that uh, LGBT individuals do face um, you know stigma and discrimination in the workplace. Uh, are, are we finding that in specific industries, um, or just generally? I think generally, I think um, some industries have moved um, 
more quickly ahead. For example, the banking sector has moved ahead and partly to do with, you know, maybe the, uh, the drivers around attracting and retaining the best talent. So when you, when you create this index, what, what sort of factors will you evaluate companies on? Will it be, you know, their, their, their employment practices, their policies? What, what sort of things do you take into account to come up with this um, diversity and inclusion index? Well, the, the index is based on um, um, a resource guide that we put together that was published a few years ago. Um, so um, uh, there are eight categories, um, eight categories of questions around um, equal opportunity policy, diversity training, diversity structure, employee benefits, corporate culture, market positioning, monitoring, and community and advocacy. So, so in order to, you know, to create change in um, sort of a company so that it does become more inclusive of its LGBT employees, it's important, isn't it, not just to have the policies, but there are some real, there's some real leadership either amongst management or on the ground towards actually making change. So um, you know, will, you, will you look at that in, in, in companies, see how they're actually implementing these policies and making it happen? Yes, absolutely. Um, it, it is important to have leadership and, and the right um, framework and policies and, and practices. So the, what the index does is provides a very, very comprehensive framework and benchmark that companies can learn from. So we encourage all companies, um, no matter where they are in their journey, large or small, um, as long as they're committed to LGBT inclusion, to uh, make a submission because they'll learn a lot from the process. And what they'll do is get a benchmark on which they could develop a roadmap for the future. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Fern Guy, and she is the CEO for Community Index. A quick look at the numbers uh, before we wrap up the show. Uh, the Nikkei is currently up uh, one, one quarter of 1% <laughs> uh, to 17,332. Australia's ASX index down 22 points to 5,330. And Seoul's Kospi down 11 points to 1,954. Brink crude oil is currently at $78.10 and gold is at $1,183.40 per ounce. Things to look out for today, manufacturing data from China and inflation in Hong Kong. Both sets of numbers are due to be released later today. Peter, what else are we missing? Well, we should keep keep an eye on the dollar. The dollar index is now at a four-year high and against the yen, the yen is now the lowest in over seven years and we also got to keep on watching commodity prices. Iron ore has fallen now to a five-year low. Um, oil is at a four-year low. Some real moves going on in the FX markets and the commodity markets around the world. So even though the US indices look a little bit becalmed at the moment, don't be deceived by that. Yeah, don't be deceived by those numbers and keep watching the others. All right, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Peter Lewis of Peter Lewis Consulting. He is here on Money for Nothing. He joins us every Thursday. So if you, if there's a specific question you'd like to put to him, please don't forget to uh, uh, post it on uh, our Facebook page, which is Money for Nothing at RTHK Radio 3. I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora, closing up the show, and a quick look at the weather forecast for today. We'll have cloudy periods in the morning, mainly fine and dry during the day. Currently, the temperature is 21 degrees Celsius, and the relative humidity is 78%. It's time for the news with Samantha Butler. 
Labour Party lawmaker Fernando Jung says the government is to blame for yesterday's violence at the Legislative Council complex. He told RTHK this morning that the government was fueling people's anger by failing to respond to their demands. Three police officers were injured when a small group of people used barricades to smash the glass doors of the complex. Mr Jung said the break-in had cast a violent shadow over what had otherwise been a peaceful campaign for true democracy. After 50-some-odd days of stalemate, and that, you know, such a strong outcry from the public that we want a genuine democratic election system in Hong Kong, the government would simply turn away its face and not listen, and reactions from them are further oppression, condemnation, tear gas, police baton, and all that. So I think the the main culprit here, of course, is the government because of its non-response Hong Kong's last governor, Chris Chris Patton, will address a U.S. government commission today on the prospects for democracy here. The Congressional Executive Commission on China was set up in 2000 to monitor human rights in China. Mr Patton will speak in a satellite link from Britain. Members of the Bipartisan Commission put forward a bill last week calling for renewed U.S. commitment to democracy and autonomy in Hong Kong. The American television network NBC has confirmed that it's scrapping a project involving the veteran comedian Bill Cosby following allegations of 